Hey, this is Tim McCurdy, and welcome to Vinepair's Cocktail College, a weekly deep dive into classic cocktails that goes beyond the recipe with America's best bartenders. As today's guest, Derek Brown, puts it, if you're running a bar and you're not offering at least one non-alcoholic cocktail, you're leaving money on the table. Now, there are multiple more important reasons for bars to offer this type of drink, but this one, the all-important bottom line, is something that I don't think anyone can argue against. And I point that out because, if we're being honest, there does still exist some kind of pushback or reluctance towards non-alcoholic cocktails among certain parts of the drinks industry. I think we can point to many reasons for that. Most folks in the industry drink booze, so spirit-free cocktails probably just don't seem as exciting. Until recently, there hasn't been a very good selection of non-alcoholic ingredients to work with either. And even with those at hand, coming up with good NA cocktails is bloody difficult. And that's where Derek Brown comes in. Because while he's not alone in championing non-alcoholic cocktails, Derek recently published a book on the category that I think approaches NA cocktail creation in a wonderful way. Just as we like to turn to that fabled balance and Colombian repository definition of what constitutes a bona fide cocktail, Derek has devised his own guidelines for the necessary components of NA drinks. And he lays those down for us today and offers incredible insight into the category in this special techniques episode. As a final note, I have to mention that the internet and technology in general seem to also be pushing back against NA drinks because we did encounter some slight digital hiccups during the recording of this one. But those bumps are very minor. And you know what? Neither they nor the fact that we're going booze-free today will leave you with any less of the buzz that you've come to expect in the Cocktail College podcast. This is the Cocktail College podcast. I'm your host, Tim McCurdy, and today we are joined by Derek Brown. Derek, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us. Hey, Tim. Thanks for inviting me. And this is one of our special technique episodes. Normally we do deep dives on drinks, but we're also looking at the whole podcast itself is about techniques. But in these special episodes, we do like to focus more on a different realm of bartending and I should say as well, by the way, we're going to have to have you back because you, you're you a scholar of drinks and, and an incredibly accomplished bartender. So we definitely need to do a cocktail episode with you. But today we're talking no and low alcohol cocktails and how to make better drinks, how to approach that. Derek, you're a great person for this. Tell us your background with that and because you've written a book about this. Um, yeah, tell us, a, t- tell us about your experience in that realm. Sure. And thank you for that, Tim. I, it was really kind of you. Um, yeah. So I, I recently wrote a book um, called Mindful Mixology, um, a comprehensive guide to no and low alcohol cocktails. And that book, the impetus for that book, well, par- partly I was inspired by a few people to write it. Um, my partner, Maria Bastash, who um, did the Disco Mary pop-up at Columbia Room that had um, no and low and what you sometimes call functional cocktails that in call in, include, you know, herbal ingredients and so forth. But, um, 
she was a great uh, sort of um, inspiration for that. And I also saw what Julia Bainbridge was doing with her book, Good Drinks, which is such a great book. And I highly recommend people pick that up. And I had, I had stopped drinking the way that I did, which was too much. <laughs> um, we can save that for another episode of, you know, <laughs> outside of cocktail college, but, but it, it, it tracks with college for sure. Um, but I, I started to see the relevance of no and low alcohol cocktails. Uh, I never before had, had thought lowly of them. You know, you can imagine that there's a whole set of bartenders out there that roll their eyes at the idea of it. Um, but from the very beginning, um, I remember researching these, you know, classic tomes of bartending, whether it was like, um, you know, uh, Jerry Thomas's, um, the Bon Vivant's guide or how to mix drinks or David Embry's, um, the fine art of the cocktail. Do you remember mm. what mixology called? fine art or, or the fine, the art, fine or, art of, or drinking it's, it's, it's fine art. And yeah. yeah. David Embry, you know, um, <laughs> a, a terrible person, truly. But I mean, a book that that certainly inspired many people, especially coming back after the Dark Ages, you know. And so, so anyway, in in all of those books, they included non-alcoholic drinks, sometimes called temperance drinks. And I was, I knew that, so I never scoffed at the idea that you know somebody came and said, "I want a non-alcoholic drink." I would thumb through those books and I would find something. Um, you know, Jerry Thomas had a great recipe for Orgeat lemonade, for instance, which uh, um, I included in my book and I thought was awesome. In fact, I, I drew from a lot of historical references um, for my book. But I started thinking about the way, you know, non-alcoholic cocktails operate um, using this sort of construct of an, a cocktail with alcohol. Now you don't have to do that. You can just make drinks without alcohol and you don't even have to make it taste like a cocktail. So, um, but for me, that's what I learned mixology. That's my trade. So I wanted to apply that. And so I kind of shied away from the historical definition in the sense of that 1806 definition that keeps being brought up again and again, the balance from the balance of Columbia repository, spirit, sugar, water, bitters, which is also the name of my first book, by the way, um, <laughs> available on Rizzoli. Still want you to buy that one first. Um, but I started thinking about, you know, well, if that's a historical definition, that, that kind of is an old fashioned, right? And, and an old fashioned, if you take out the sugar and you put in a, in vermouth and you put it up instead of on rocks is a Manhattan. You take out the rye and you put it in gin. Um, you have um, a spoonful of maraschino and you have a Martinez and you take the, um, the maraschino, maraschino out, you put dry gin, dry vermouth and orange bitters, and you have a dry martini. And you know, anyway, that, that is the very form of the cocktail that some genius came up with in terms of a cocktail with alcohol. But I started thinking, well, what is a non-alcoholic cocktail? Um, just a historical note, it turns out that the first mention of cocktail as a beverage is 1798 in London. And it is in reference to a beverage that we do not know whether had alcohol or not, but there is some contention there. Um, David Wondrich, a, a very um, thoughtful scholar, uh, you mentioned scholars, uh, he's more of a scholar than I'll ever be, um, even suggested that it, it might be non-alcoholic because of the price. It, the, it's mentioned in this, the Morning Gazetteer, which is a London newspaper in 1798, 
in reference to the prime minister at the time, Mr. Pitt. Um, and they mentioned this drink, it is considerably less expensive than all the alcohol drinks, which include things like gin and bitters and so forth. So it could be that the very mention of cocktail as a drink in the beginning was a ginger based drink because mm -hmm. it also talks about ginger, uh, it being a ginger drink, which is a little bit wrapped up in a joke. I won't get into all of that, but, uh, um, Anastasia, um, uh, Miller and Jared Brown discovered that and write about it. And they, they say that they have a whole other theory about it, but mm -hmm. again, we're not here for the history of that. Two other wonderful scholars we can just say right there. Yeah. Um, so I, uh, started thinking about, okay, well, what, what about this historical definition? I mean, do we even really use that definition anymore? Not necessarily. So, so what do we want to zero in on when we're talking about non-alcoholic cocktails and what would distinguish a, like, why isn't tea a, a non iced tea, a non-alcoholic cocktail, right? I mean, I think we know, right. But, but, but I wanted to really, you know, um, kind of codify that. And so I did one of these things that some seems like a myth, like people do, but it worked for me. I went to bed with a problem um, that I wanted to solve and I woke up with an answer. And so I was thinking, well, what is the construction of a non-alcoholic cocktail? Like what parts make it up? So I woke up the next morning, there were four key parts that I thought, um, thought about, and these I include in my book. So one of them is the intensity of flavor. So I thought, okay, I mean, you never mistakenly drink a cocktail. You know it's a cocktail. And one of the reasons why is it has a lot of intensity of flavor, whether you're talking about a gin and tonic or an old fashioned or a dry martini, all of those are intense of flavor. And so that's a, a key component of it. Texture is usually a, a component of it, right? Mm -hmm. There are varying textures because, you know, you do have cocktails that are essentially actually highballs. Um, and you have cocktails that are like a Sazerac that are essentially not a shot, but you know, they're neat. They're sort of neat. And so there is a wide variation texture, but, but we, we zero in on a general range of texture and there's a textural element to it. Mm -hmm. Um, and then there's something, uh, that I call piquancy, which you could use different terms. It doesn't really matter, but I just settled on that one because it's kind of like that bite you get from alcohol generally, but you yeah. can get from a lot of different ingredients actually. Um, I, I describe it as the thing that twists your face when you take a shot of um, tequila or whiskey. And then um, just because it's a kind of critical component in cocktails with alcohol, the length or the volume that alcohol takes up, you know, like if you have lemonade, it's not a Tom Collins, right? But if you put gin in there, it all of a sudden becomes a, a, a Tom Collins. And part of the reason why is because the gin occupies a certain amount of space in that mm -hmm. drink. So I thought, okay, these are these sort of sensory characteristics of a cocktail. And I'm going to start using those as my building box blocks to make non-alcoholic cocktail. So instead of just focusing in on this historical definition, which would not really apply well in this case, I'm going to think about how I can build cocktails using those guideposts. And, and that was the foundation of my book, Mindful Mixology. Um, and what I try to outline in there is both that theory and um, what ingredients I use to get there. Yeah, that's, that's so interesting. I love that you've taken that approach to doing that because like you said, otherwise, how do you even define this? It's, you know, you could essentially say like, it's, it's almost any drink, 
bar water, right? Like that doesn't contain alcohol that could be here. So I love that you've put those parameters out there. And I'm, I'm sure that when it comes to creating drinks, having that structure there is also something that's probably very helpful. Um, I also loved this idea when you were describing non-alcoholic cocktails from a historical standpoint and that they've always existed. I love this idea that, you know, everything that's old eventually becomes new again, right? And this feels like something that's very new and it's not. But one thing that has changed and it comes into your, your definition there is, you know, ingredients, quality of the ingredients, diversity of ingredients that are being made now for this specific purpose. Mm-hmm. Can you tell me a little bit about what that landscape looks like now and maybe how to how to navigate it, right? Like these non-alcoholic spirits as you as you will. Right. Yeah, let me get into that, but uh, let me mention something before that. Um, you know, being a bartender in the, you know, in in this day and age, we might think we have a whole bevy of ingredients that people in the past never thought of. And, and that is true to some degree. Like when we're talking about like chemicals, for instance, you know, like that, that people use in cocktails to, to adjust certain flavors. But um, I remember thinking to myself, you know, um, salt tincture is something cool and new, right? It's very trendy and, and it's, it started showing up everywhere um, at a certain point, maybe 2018 or 2019, I don't remember. It was like the age of salt tincture. And so I was looking through some of these prohibition era temperance cocktail books. And sure enough, people had put salt in cocktails. It was, it was something that was already there. So I think a lot of these things people already figured out. And, and so there are, you know, some of these spirits that we're talking about that are non-alcoholic distilled spirits are also based off old recipes yep. for distillates um, that were non-alcoholic. But it is a new landscape and, and, and it is an emergent category because it didn't really exist in full before that. Um, and so I, I've, I think it's pretty exciting um, it, to be at the birth of this new category within spirits. And um, it's growing exponentially. I call it kind of like the non-alcoholic spirits arms race, you know. And, uh, you know, Camper English, who you should certainly get on for your clear ice show. <laughs> you should <laughs> He's like a, a ice savant or something. Um, he mentioned, he started t- 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 keeping this list. list, right? Yeah. Uh, and, and I remember, I can't re- remember where I started looking at it, but it probably somewhere below 40, mm-hmm. um, not alcoholic spirits. And recently he tweeted that he wanted to um, cut it off at 150. And that was fastly approaching. I, I begged him to keep it going, but we'll see what. We'll see what he does. He said it's not very interesting to him. I said, "Well, it's, is it more interesting than watching ice water freeze?" You know, like <laughs> so. putting figurines in ice, which is yeah. something he always assigned. He's still around. Wonderful. Yeah. So he didn't respond after that, <laughs> but, <laughs> but I hope he takes it in good spirit. So, so okay, no pun intended. Um, so, so here we have this like emerging, and and listen, there's still places you can go, and there's more flavored vodkas on the back bar than there are non-alcoholic spirits in the world, but it's an emerging category and it's really exciting. Some of them are distilled, right? I, so I do work for a company called Spiritless, which has created a non-alcoholic uh, bourbon or whiskey alternative called Kentucky 74, which I think is absolutely fantastic. My favorite of, of all the products. Um, and, you know, there's others that have, and, and that is a distilled product. And there's, 
and it starts with alcohol and then the alcohol is later distilled out, if you will. Um, in their process, they refer to it as reversed distillation. Interesting. Um, but there, there are examples where people have also compounded products like liars, right? Which is makes some really great cordials. Like if you wanted yeah. a, their coffee original, I think is a non-alcoholic like uh, Kahlua or, yeah. or what have you. You can use an espresso martini. It works great. Um, those are just compounded. They don't have any distilled product in them and they don't need it. They're made like a bartender makes anything by putting everything together, you know? Um, and, and, and it, within that there's, you know, those products that are, uh, analogs, you know, that they are meant to imitate alcohol. Yes. Spirits. And then you have creative, um, ones that aren't, they, they don't imitate anything at all. Like, um, Sakura from, um, Woodnose drinks, which is, uh, vinegar based and it is made of coffee, um, maple syrup and maple syrup vinegar. Um, Interesting. so from a, from a hundred year old mother, now that's important for people who don't know vinegar, how vinegar is made. That doesn't literally mean from a mother who's hundred years old. <laughs> that, that's the product that starts the vinegar. <laughs> right. All right. So clarification is important there. Um, but, but yeah, so that product is pretty unique and nobody's ever seen anything like that. Um, like this funky Kahlua. And so there's creative products like that. And then there's ones like the Kentucky 74. Um, and all of them I think are, um, you know, offer something, um, to, to this category and this category will only continue to grow. Um, it is a minefield for sure. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, but when people are like, oh, I had one non-alcoholic spirit and it tasted bad. I don't like it. Uh, I'm always like, well, what if you did that with gin? You know, like how quickly we would be stopped yeah. if we had one shitty gin and then that was the end of it. You know, there's hundreds of gins, but no, the one, one I had that ruins all gin forever. So I think that, um, you know, it is a little bit of a minefield because it is a, a new category and people are developing, um, yeah. and there'll be growing standards around it and there'll be innovation around it. Um, and it'll only continue to get better until maybe, you know, we have that sort of like Star Trek synthanol, you know, where it's just like tastes exactly like it. But <laughs> can I cut in here as well for a second and just say that like, this is something, so for my work at VinePair, like every year we do uh, the kind of roundup, I'll do the tasting of it. And I've been doing it for the past couple of years. And I'll say that A, for sure, I've seen the category explode over the past like two years when I did it this year, I just, I was trying so many different products I'd never had before. I completely concur with you, right? Like just cause the one that you have might be bad. Like there's a lot of great products out there. Um, another thing that I noticed too, you, you, you mentioned about, you know, one of your pillars of, of the non-alcoholic cocktail, right? Being the kind of the burn in a way. I definitely felt like the ones that succeeded really well for me were those that maybe used something like ginger or something where it left a little heat on the end of the palate. And, and there was, when I noticed that quite a few brands were doing it, I was like, Oh, right. That makes sense. That's, that's almost like mimicking the effect there. And it was, it was really interesting. Is that something that you come across as well? Like that, that kind of that kick or spice in a way that mimics alcohol. Yeah. I think that's an important part of it. And I think you can apply those four, category to some degree to non-alcoholic spirits as well. And so, I mean, I think it's important to have some kind of piquancy to those as well. You have to like 
have that little bit of burn, whether it's ginger, which is one of my favorites to use. Yeah. Um, you know, some people use um, vinegar or extreme bitterness. Um, you were drink, just drinking the Gia, which is fantastic stuff. Um, and this has ginger as well in it too. So it's, it, we're doubling down there. Double down on it. Yeah. <laughs> but it's a thing that stops you a little bit from gulping it. Yeah. Right. Um, because it's a complex, it, it's a, it's a complexity factor, right? Like it's, it complexifies the drink. Uh, that is probably not a word. So I will, uh, you know, you're welcome to cut that out or keep it up there. <laughs> um, the complexification of things. But, but I think that, um, that, that piquancy stops you from just gulping it. And it's a really, you know, it, it, it's something we like. Humans like things that irritate them. Yeah. Right. Otherwise podcasts would not exist. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> so th I think that like we, you know, whether it's like uh, mint, you know, that tingling from we get from mint or the burn we get from alcohol or the burn we get from capsicum, all of those um, are enticing elements of complexity. And so, you know, that's, that's all in there. Um, and I think that that's a part of non-alcoholic spirits. And, and I like that. One thing I do like to point out, because there's another thing that people do when they have a non-alcoholic spirit, they uh, drink it straight and they go, well, that doesn't taste like alcohol. <laughs> yeah, you're like, well, okay, congratulations. That is correct. Yes, it does not taste like alcohol. <laughs> yeah. Um, because alcohol, as one of the founders of Spiritless says, is a magical molecule. You know, like there's not anything like it. And so... Many times these are meant to work in cocktails and not be drank neat, or if they are meant to be drank neat, they are meant to be different than alcohol. So, so I think that you have to approach them for an open mind. So I kind of am making it my mission to share more information about that with people and share some of the things that make a good non-alcoholic spirit with people so that when they approach it, instead of saying, you know, rejecting it outright, they say, well, okay, what is good about this spirit, right? Like, just imagine that cognac was your only frame of reference for a, you know, what a good spirit is. And then you had me uh, mezcal. Yeah. You would be like, this stuff's crap. This stuff's this terrible. Garbage. Nothing uh, this, like that. <laughs> um, but then somebody comes along and says, oh, no, actually, there's some components of that that you're not, you know, you're not, it's a different thing. So here's what you should be looking for in mezcal. Here's what mm -hmm. you should be looking for in cognac. And they do share some characteristics, but overall they are different products. And you're like, bing, you know, okay, cool. Yeah, that, that makes sense. So mezcal should be judged on mezcal's terms and cognac should be judged on cognac terms and non-alcoholic spirits should be judged on non-alcoholic spirits terms. And I mean, you know, this, this is ingredient discussion that the, the brands themselves, you know, this could go on for a long time. And I, we do have other things that I would love to get into. But I was just wondering from a kind of cocktail perspective, um, maybe there's no simple answer to this, but when it comes to creation and maybe earlier in your journey in this category, did you find it more easy to approach those ones that were like, this is a non-alcoholic version of gin or whiskey or AN other style of spirit or the ones that you mentioned before that like don't really have a precedent and are not giving, they're not stating, you know, like maybe some kind of use case, like which route do you think was easier for creating cocktails? Right. 
my very um, unscientific survey, but based on my experience, is that bartenders tend to prefer the creative category mm. because they because it gives them something totally new um, in their toolkit, and, and because they philosophically they think, well, this if it's going to be whiskey, let's use whiskey, you know. Um, whereas consumers are more comfortable with the things that already exist because they don't want to learn a brand new thing every time, yep. you know, um, because that's scary. They already have to, you know, you've already thrust all these different spirits on them over the last decade. You know, they were like, well, we like bourbon. You're like, you should try rye. You're like, oh man. Okay. You know, like well, <laughs> we're making, we're making a wheat whiskey too. Oh, okay. 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 Now we're making it with, you know, um, uh, mullet, millet. You know, you're like, fuck, all right, now I have to like learn. It's confusing for consumers. So they, they, you know, for a lot of them want to, wanted to stay within a wheelhouse. So that's my very unscientific survey. But for me personally, um, I think that I probably started connecting with the non alcoholic you know, like the creative non-alcoholic spirits first, um, because, uh, the very same reason other bartenders did, because, um, I didn't know what non-alcoholic spirits were supposed to taste like, but these tasted really fun and wacky and totally different than anything I've ever had before. So give me, give me like the shot of vinegar, maple syrup, vinegar, and coffee. That's wild. Let's do it. You know, or the, you know, Gia where, where it does taste like an Amaro, but Amaro is each one of them is unique unto They're itself. All, yeah, it's, yeah. yeah. I didn't have to like say, oh, this doesn't taste like Fernet. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. And so moving on to like another one of your, your, your pillars that you kind of outlined at the, at the middle, at the beginning, sorry. And this does also, you know, um, relate back to the, the initial ingredients to texture. I find mm -hmm. that to be so important, but alcohol itself has body, it has texture. So when it comes to cocktail creation beyond just the, the, the base spirit, right. That you're using non-alcoholic. How do you achieve that? How do you approach texture in a non-alcoholic drink? So that it's, so it's just right. So that it's not, you know, so it maybe doesn't feel too thin on the palate, even if it is packed with flavor. Yeah. So that uh, obviously is a challenge. And even for non-alcoholic spirits, because, you know, some of them do a good job at, at kind of, you know, adding some texture or weight, but ultimately, you know, again, it's not alcohol, so it's not going to be exact. So what I do is I try to use other ingredients to shore up that texture. So I'll give you an example. Um, with the, with my book, I, you know, I, I put out a recipe called the pinch hitter, which is a very simple sour recipe. It has lemon, um, sugar, and then I add a couple things to it to give it, you know, more intensive flavor and frequency and texture, right? So the, um, the, the additional kind of like piquancy of flavor I put in there with um, apple cider vinegar, right? Which is a byproduct of alcohol. So it uh, carries with it some of those funky esters that sometimes come out of alcohol. So, so that added a little bit more complexity to it. Then I added for the textural element, aquafaba, which is, you know, chickpea water. For those who don't know, it's just a can of chickpeas. That's literally all it is. Uh, the, the liquid from a can of chickpeas. Yeah. Don't, <laughs> don't put the actual chick. Nobody wants a hummus teeny. That's just <laughs> disgusting, you know? 
So, um, so they put, you put some of that in there and then I added salt again, thinking I was more clever than people of, of the past, although they've already added that. Um, so putting salt in it, which adds texture as well, because it, there's particulates, you know, mm -hmm. it, it adds to the weight. And so that kind of builds it around it. And then I uh, use a simple syrup with ginger that gives it more of the intensity of flavor, more of that bite. And also the syrup itself adds weight and texture that you can adjust. So, so that pinch hitter altogether is lemon juice, um, ginger syrup, salt tincture, apple cider vinegar, and aquafaba. And altogether, when you taste it, I think, you know, it's just as good as any sour out there. Um, and it provides a really nice, um, sort of template to switch things up. You can switch out the lemon and put in grapefruit juice. You could, um, you know, change the ginger syrup to thyme syrup. And all of a sudden you have these different combinations. And so I put that out there as like a very basic template to build non-alcoholic sours from. And it, you know, and, and, and if you also notice the ingredients are super cheap, mm -hmm. right? And a lot of people will have them there. A lot of people probably have them there in their kitchen right now. That's right. And so now I don't, I think most bars, I don't argue you should have cheap non-alcoholic cocktails. I, I, in fact, I've argued the opposite. Non-alcoholic cocktails should, should cost just as much as regular uh, cocktails. But um, when you're making them at home, you have maybe a different option. And, and if you're just looking for a simple straightforward drink. That would be an example where you could go to the grocery store if you don't have it at home and make that drink that afternoon. Mm -hmm. And you've touched upon something there that I wanted to jump to later, but let's chat about it now quickly. Uh, price, because I think this is something that, again, maybe irks skeptics here. Um, why do you therefore think it's important to have non-alcoholic cocktails as, as, as expensive as normal ones on the menu? Does it come down to the ingredients, they're just as expensive taken overall, or is it also a kind of perception thing so that people do take this more seriously? Yeah. I mean, I would be a little bit reluctant to charge just based on perception, but I will say that there's, there's three reasons why I believe non-alcoholic cocktails are generally, um, as expensive as, you know, cocktails with alcohol. One of them is it takes me just as long to create it. Right. In, in fact, in some cases longer because I have to think about, you know, aspects of it. So, so if we consider R and D and labor, which it is, and if we consider the bartender's knowledge and, and training labor, which it is, then we have to accept that that might be part of the package. That's part of what you're paying for. If you're using expensive ingredients, then that obviously makes it expensive, right? You are not going to subsidize the customer's experience as much as that would be nice for them. You know, like if you're using some kind of, you know, uh, very expensive pu'er aged tea from China that, you know, um, has this really wonderful, rich, earthy flavor, but happens to be expensive because it's aged, you know, that costs money. Or if you're using a non-alcoholic spirit, on average, non-alcoholic spirits cost more than spirits by, by about 50 cents. There was a, um, Drizzly did a, uh, something about that, where they wrote about the fact that on, a, on average, non-alcoholic spirits were 50%, 50 cents higher, not 50%, 50 cents higher. And the reason why also is because the, sometimes using proprietary formulas, sometimes they have to undergo um, additional distillations that 
non-alcohol or that alcohol spirits don't have to. So, so if you're using the spirits, then that makes uh, immediate sense. The other part of it is it's part of, um, you're not just buying a cocktail, you're buying experience, right? So if you get a pinch hitter, mm-hmm. um, that I just described earlier and it costs pennies to make it home, well, guess what? You don't have to pay a lot of money for that. You can just make it at home and you can sit on your sofa and enjoy it while you watch, you know, um, Netflix. But if you want the experience of going to a bar and that person has, you know, created this wonderful experience of beautiful glass where, um, you know, a, a great environment to be in, chances are, again, they're using expensive ingredients in the cocktail or the best ingredients that they can use. And that costs money too. So all of that, you know, you can't get subsidized. If, right. again, if you want cheap cocktails, you can do that at home. You can do that with alcohol too. You can go buy super cheap ingredients and make a super cheap cocktail at home and you don't even have to adjust the decor. You know? <laughs> Amazing. So if we can jump back a second to um, ingredients that we were speaking about before, here's a question I have, and this might be a, a kind of person by person scenario here, right? But I always find it interesting when folks say they're doing dry January and then one of their favorite drinks to have in dry, in dry January is soda water with bitters. Now, a lot of bitters come through at 40% ABV. Of course, we're using them in, in very minuscule amounts overall when you look at the total volume of a drink. So how do you approach that? Is that something you would highlight on a menu or is that something you would be like, look, I'm looking for a replacement ingredient here to have that effect? Yeah, it's a really good question and one that deserves more debate. Um, but but as far as I'm concerned, um, the legal definition of non-alcoholic is a good one. Um, it's 0.5% alcohol or less. And before people say, well, oh my gosh, I mean, it does have alcohol in it. Keep in mind that bread has more alcohol than that or that a ripe banana might have as much alcohol. So it's it's not something that, um, you know, in nature, alcohol exists already and people who don't drink, eat those and consume and ingest alcohol. Um, but some people are very strict, uh, whether it's for piety or because they're in recovery. And I respect that. So I think there, there is worth noting, um, in some cases. Right. Mm-hmm. But if you put a couple dashes of bitters in soda water, it's true. It's going to be less than 0.5% alcohol. So, so it depends on yeah. what that person wants. But, but with my book, for instance, Mindful Nexology, I try to point out, it's not a book for people in recovery per se. I mean, I will let people determine for themselves what their recovery looks like, but, um, it has low alcohol cocktails in it. Um, and it has drinks that taste like alcohol. So for some people, that's an absolute no-no when it comes to their sobriety. Um, and so I think that's important to, to point out. But there's a lot of people that either want to reduce their drinking or cut out drinking that exist um, in this gray area, right? Mm-hmm. So, so there are, in fact, gray area drinkers who have some level of problem drinking that want to reduce the way they drink. And then there's some people who just want to reduce the, the way they drink for whatever reason. You know, and that might be because of health reasons. It could be because they have a meeting the next day, whatever it is. And I think that those are the vast majority of people who um, are, are going to be using my book and um, 
you know, trying these recipes out and, and, and taking dry January on, mm -hmm. you know, so I've got a couple questions there. You you know, you obviously mentioned, yeah, that the book is also, it's not just non-alcoholic cocktails, it's low alcohol too. Um, as a quick aside here, I, I did, I think for the first time in January, taste spiritless. Um, and that suggestion of having it almost like 50-50 with bourbon or whiskey or whatever, at first I was like, that's strange. <laughs> then I tried it and I was like, this is wonderful. I would absolutely prefer to have this to cut down maybe my intake of alcohol rather than watered down with, you know, an ice cube, right? Or, or, or whatever, or highball. I thought it was great. I was like, can't believe no one's ever thought of this before. So I thought that was pretty cool. Um, That's but non-alcohol, uh, low alcoholic cocktail. Sorry. This is something someone had mentioned to me before that might seem counterintuitive, but the more I thought about it, the more I thought it was a great idea, which is may actually be a very good vessel for high ABV spirits, such as Navy Strength's gin or cast strength bourbon, because it allows you to use a lower volume overall, but you're getting that punchier flavor. Is that kind of an easy hack there, right? Is that something you subscribe to for, for that category? Um, yeah, I can see that. I, I, I haven't really used that mm -hmm. per se. I think that sounds like a, a pretty good strategy. Um, more often I focus on low alcohol spirits or in reducing the volume. I have a drink called the downward tiger, which is a combination of tequila, lime juice, um, apple juice, fresh green apple juice. Um, and it's got a dash of, um, Tabasco green sauce in it. It's a, their green hot sauce. Um, and in it, I use a half ounce of tequila and it works beautifully and the other ingredients support it. And so when somebody tastes it, it doesn't necessarily feel like it doesn't have tequila in it, it does feel like it has tequila. So there's ways to support it. And I, and so I can, in that way, I could see that working, but I also like using, um, sherry, um, beer, wine, shochu. Um, I like using, um, yeah, just a, a bevy of, you know, lower alcohol spirits or wines or beers, because yeah. then, then it's like, it's the hacks is that you don't, you can put as much as you, not as much as you want in there, because obviously volume is as much a concern as, um, the percentage, you know, if you drink a half an ounce of high proof bourbon, or you drink, you know, 20 beers, <laughs> that are low <laughs> alcohol, obviously, you know, which one's going to get you drunk. Yeah. Um, so, so volume is as much concern as, as ABV, but, but I tend to focus on ABV at, in terms of making low alcohol cocktails. And you mentioned Sherry. Amaro's, yeah. Amaro's are also great and liqueurs. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, I was just going to give a quick shout out. You mentioned Sherry there and one wonderful Sherry cocktail, the bamboo. We had Alex Day on for that on the show already. So check out that episode if you haven't. That's a, that's a wonderful drink that allows you that kind of the complexity of a, a stirred spirit forward, but without the ABV. That's a great one. Absolutely. Yeah. That's awesome. Um, so, you know, within your career, you, you've been innovative, I would say forward thinking. Um, you're, you know, you're now former bar, uh, Columbia room with the, the kind of tasting menu approach. Um, so it doesn't actually surprise me also just in, in some respects, like that you're 
going, you're leaning so much into this, you know, beyond your personal life, but like leaning into this and taking it seriously. I was wondering if you could share some words, maybe for, for bartenders listening or whatever, like about what you feel the importance of, of having a non-alcoholic drinks program and, and one that's thought out and one that's more thoughtful, like how important is it these days? This is not good. This is not going away. Right. Like as people say or whatever. Well, one of the reasons why this appeared so ascendant so quickly is because there was already a, um, a group of consumers who were being underserved. Um, and that is, uh, you know, people who, you know, don't, don't, don't like drinking alcohol for whatever reason. Um, you know, again, piety or they're pregnant or health or, you know, whatever reason they're doing it, they were already there and they, you didn't have anything to offer them. And so, you know, in some cases people would hastily make a non-alcoholic cocktail on the spot or they'd offer them lemonade or Coca-Cola, fine drinks, but not, you know, adult sophisticated beverages. And so that was, I think the largest group of consumers out there. And as soon as you start offering that, they, they came out and they were like, wow, this is great. We were, we didn't feel like we had a place at bars or, or we felt we had to just get soda and pretend we were the designated driver or whatever. Um, so that's the first thing I tell bartenders is that you were just leaving money on the table. Um, mm -hmm. um, so the second part of that is that there's people who, um, you know, they want to adjust their intake of alcohol based on how they want to feel. And so is your cock, is your bar about alcohol or is it about people? Right? Cause if it's about alcohol, then fine. Don't put any non-alcoholic stuff in there. And then you have this shrine to alcohol. But if you, if your bar is about serving people, some of those people drink, some of those people drink a lot. Some of those people drink a moderate amount and some of those people drink nothing. So, you know, you want to be able to serve all kinds of people, all kinds of options. Um, and that I think is important. So, so I want to encourage people to go out to, to think about that. Don't leave the money on the table. You know, they want to here, take my money, you know, like I, we want drinks. Um, and, um, you know, you help people feel the way they want to feel, not the way you want them to feel the way they want to feel. Um, and that means that they have choices over, you know, the amount of alcohol they drink and they, they shouldn't be pressured to do it. I mean, it's one of the weirdest things is that, um, to say that you don't want to drink with alcohol, you have to give your whole life story, right? So you're at a, a bar and your friend orders in Manhattan and you say, what kind of non-alcoholic drinks do you have? And your friend says, oh, you don't drink? Why? Yeah. And you're like, well, I mean, it all started when I was young, when I was five years old, you know, and, and, and you, you have to go into the whole thing or you have to say something like I'm pregnant or I am uh, an alcoholic. Um, and then they go, oh yeah, I get that. Um, there's no other drink really that you have to give your whole life story for. Um, and, and I think that that's unfair to people because yeah. most people are happy to give you their life story once you get to know them in, in the right circumstance, but not many people want to just drop their life story just because you caught them ordering a drink that you wouldn't order, you know? There's a million reasons why someone might not drink and yet like they don't need to give you one of them anyway. Right? <laughs> so right. like, and, the, and the fact of having those, and I think it's the social thing too, right? Like someone can feel comfortable. It looks like you're drinking, a, you are drinking a cocktail, right? It just might not contain booze. Um, and you know, 
it's very intentional. I'm happy that we're recording this and, and putting this out. You know, if guests listen on a weekly basis, if they listen when it comes out, sorry, if listeners listen when it comes out, it's intentional this isn't in January because I think it's stupid that we just focus on this topic and this space in January. So, I, you know, it's better that we're doing it now and putting it out now. That's that's my personal opinion. Um, yeah, I like that. Mm, so Derek, I mean, I'm sure you have, I mean, you have a whole book's worth of thought and insight and, and everything else, but I was wondering for the purposes of this show, any final shot, any final thoughts to kind of wrap up this conversation on, on non-alcoholic cocktails and yeah. And that field and that craft. Yeah. When I switched from knowing, you know, from making classic cocktails to a focus of no and low alcohol cocktails, I felt like maybe I was changing directions. But when I sat and thought with it, uh, when I sat and thought about it more, I realized it's just a continuation of the same thing. I just want people to have great choices. Um, people who enjoy high proof spirits and lots of them, bless you, enjoy what you enjoy. My job is not to play referee, you know? Um, my job is to offer choices to people. and. As you can see, it's a part of the history of bartending and it's part of the present of bartending. And so I want to make sure that those options are out there so people can, again, feel the way they want to feel. That's wonderful. Thank you for sharing. Yeah, thanks, um, Tim. And so let's head into the final section of the show, our recurring weekly section, where we get to know our guests a little bit more with our five recurring questions. How's that sound? Perfect. Let's do it. Question number one. What style or category of spirit would typically enjoy the most real estate on um, your professional bar? It's always been whiskey. I mean, if we're talking about alcohol, I mean, obviously we spend a lot of time talking non-alcoholic spirits and those are gaining, but, but in terms of, you know, what I've served in the past, I've always, you know, historically been an oak addict. I like spirits that have um, age to them um, in white oak barrels and, and that, and bourbon does it for me. Does it so well. And, and DC as well. If you are looking to seek out good whiskey drinking spots, DC is a good place for it. Um, question number two, which ingredient or tool do you think is the most undervalued in a bartender's arsenal? Uh, bar spoon. Sometimes people laugh at that, but you know, it, it stirring is, I think, a more graceful act than shaking. Um, you have a lot more control there. Um, the, the, the bowl of it can be used as a measuring, uh, for measuring, you know, you can pour the, the sparkling, um, uh, wine down it. You know, there's lots of little, you can muddle with it if you have to, there's lot, it's a very useful thing. So, so it's not sexy maybe to say like a cocktail spoon, but, um, that is, I think the most un undervalued bar. To Wonderful. Question number three, what's the most important piece of advice you've received while working in this industry? So when I worked as a sommelier uh, at a place called Citronella DC, it was a great restaurant. Uh, the chef sommelier at the time, uh, Mark Slater, once told me that you got to remember, Derek, that the cocktails should be delicious, right? And so I know that sounds pretty simplistic, but in the beginning of the cocktail renaissance, if you will, there was a rush to make 
drinks bitter and sour and very weird with whatever ingredients you could throw in there. And sometimes it was overbearing. And I think that having somebody say, hey, don't forget, people have to enjoy these. It's not just for your intellectual um, you know, gratification. It is for somebody's palate. I think that was a powerful mm -hmm. statement. I like it. Wonderful. Um, question number four. If you could only visit one last bar in your life, past or present, which one would you like to cross the doorstep of? <laughs> I'd love to go back to say um, para de, de sufrir. Um, and I'm butchering the Spanish, but it's a, a bar in Guadalajara um, in Mexico. Para de sufrir means end the suffering. Um, and a, a guy named uh, Pedro Jimenez runs it, who just has all these local artisanal mezcals and ricias. Um, they serve um, beef jerky with hot sauce. That's the only food I know when I was there. That's all they had. And they played cumbia music and we all danced and had a great time. Now, um, I, I don't eat meat or, and I don't drink alcohol, but I might make an exception for that wonderful little place. Amazing. And final question for you today. If you knew that the next cocktail you drank was going to be your last, what would you order or make hypothetically? Hands down a dry martini. I mean, a 50-50 martini, orange bitters, cold as hell, lemon peel, expressed and discarded. Um, that's always been my favorite drink um, and one that I would I would be happy to visit before the Reaper. So amazing. That's it's a popular one for that question, I must say, and definitely the one I would go with myself. Derek, <laughs> thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for sharing this incredible wealth of knowledge. And yeah, we'll have to, like I say, we'll definitely have to get you back on for a drink too, because I would love to get some of your insight on a on a cocktail too one day. I'd love that. Thanks, Tim. I really appreciate you including me. Thank you very much. Okay, that was a lot of info, but here's the good news. Every single episode of VinePair's Cocktail College is also published on vinepair.com as a transcript, so you can check it out there all over again. Also, if you enjoy listening to the show anywhere near as much as we enjoy making it, go ahead and hit subscribe, and please leave a rating or review wherever you get your podcasts, whether that's Apple, Spotify, or Stitcher, and please tell your friends. Now for the credits. Cocktail College is recorded and produced in New York City by myself and Keith Beavers, VinePair's tastings director and all-round podcast guru. Of course, I want to give a huge shout out to everyone on the VinePair team. Too many awesome people to mention. They know who they are. But I want to give some credit here to Danielle Grinberg, art director at VinePair, for designing the awesome show logo. And listen to that music. That's a Darby Seaside original. Finally, thank you, listener, for making it this far and for giving this whole thing a purpose. Until next time.